Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason Are you gonna love them or hate them? Here comes the binge Hey everybody, welcome to The Binge In which a couple of homos review the latest movie theater releases I'm Jason Leroy And I'm Rebecca Larte And today we have three movies for you Black Klansman, The Miseducation of Cameron Post And Nico, 1988 And as always, we're going to rate these movies on a three-tiered scale, with Binge It being our highest rating. Consume in moderation means it's okay, but it's kind of meh. And send it back means... Life is too short for that mess. Jason, what is going on with you? Well, thank you for asking. I would say that today, uh, I am just overwhelmed with um, embarrassment Mm. for the just-announced changes to next year's Oscars. Now, Rebecca, have you heard about this? No, I've not. Well, let me tell you. Um, And guys, as we are speaking, we are taping this just on the day that these changes were announced. And so by the time you're hearing this, they have hopefully been (laughs) retracted. Um, Then uh, let's just say, great, no harm done. Are they finally going to start including YouTube videos? (laughs) Uh, You can continue your campaign um, because they have not yet um, For your consideration. FYC campaign. Keep going with it. My Nintendo Switch unboxing video. (laughs) So... Um, so apparently, um, ABC, the network that um, ho- that hosts the Oscars, um, that 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 you know broadcasts them, um, and has done so for a long time, and has a deal with the Academy running through, I believe, twenty twenty eight to continue doing so. ABC has for some time been very concerned about the ratings of the Oscars because mm, they run so long. Um, and so this year, um, for instance, they were down, I believe, nineteen percent from the year before. Um, the year before, it was already down something like 30% from the year before that. Wow. Um, and the, the numbers still, when you look at it, it still looks good by, I think, you know, I guess just not by live TV standards. Because it's like, this year it was like 26 million people. Oh, right. Because um, everyone watches it later. Or just the clips. Right. Um, which Again. I think which I think has to do with it, too. Um, I think that's part of it. But that's... I mean, are there less gay men than there were five years ago? <laughs> no. I think there's more. It feels right, like there's I more. Think, I mean, I go you out, would know. I go outside, I'm just like, there's more. <laughs> Uh, we're multiplying. We're legion. So, um, so apparently, after this year's um, this year being, I believe, not only a sharp decrease from last year, but also a new rock bottom, ratings wise, period, historically for the Oscars, um, the Academy finally, I guess, kind of felt like they had to give a little and negotiate with ABC, and they have arrived at three big changes. The first of those changes is that the uh, ca- uh, the awards ceremony will now be capped at three hours, period. No run over, none. It's going to run three hours, and that's done. The second change, one of the things that will I be... I don't think that's a bad thing. What do you think? I think I agree with... Kyle Buchanan wrote a great screed about this on Vulture um, this past Oscar season, where he's like, you know what? No one ever complains when the Super Bowl runs long. If you think the Oscars run too long, the Oscars aren't for you. The Oscars should be long. And a lot of the best parts of the Oscars can be in those weird moments where it's kind of meandering. Uh, that's where mm. Oscar magic really happens. Um, and plus, if it runs long, then you have less of those just ex- excruciating moments of people being played off. Uh, like, just let it take up the amount of space that it needs uh, to exist. So I am but not... But playing off creates so much drama. <laughs> Don't you like that? <laughs> so you're thinking like a reality TV producer. Well, I'm just I, saying. I do like that. So um, one... And uh, so the second big change that they are going to be doing to accommodate to help make this... Um, this new running time cap um, more feasible is that they are going to move a number of awards to commercial breaks. They will give out a number of below the line awards during commercial breaks. And then they'll show quick clips from that when they come back from commercial. Those are always the best ones. Those are the people that like have nothing to lose and they say the weirdest shit. And these are the people like this, you know, these are the biggest nights of their lives. And now they won't even be broadcast. Uh, mm. so, and this is something that, you know, I mean, like a lot of other awards do this, I guess the Tonys do this, the Grammys, of course, by necessity, since the Grammys have like 150 categories, um, only a select few are presented on air. Um, but by, but by, it's obviously incredibly demeaning to best to, boy, to the boys best, of the world campaigning for best, um, best achievement by boy, <laughs> um, <laughs> is now probably not going to be on the air. Damn. Uh, so that is uh, very offensive to um, to the below the line categories. And then there's the third change. Oh, man, I'm, I'm hoping this one is like, it's all going to be on Snapchat or they're all going to be doing it on rollerblades or it, they're all going to have go cams. In a response to, um, you know, sort of the ongoing 
everyman populist bullshit of like, oh, no one cares about the movies that are nominated at the Oscars anyway. Nominate some movies people actually care about. And, oh, no. and a misbegotten belief, I think, that more people will watch the Oscars if there are more things nominated that people care about. They are introducing a, a, a new category for best popular film. So it's really only super terrible because of the first two pieces. You're going to add something for the idiots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're going to take away people who have worked a lifetime right. to get best Foley. Right. You never watched the Oscars, have you? I've never seen a one. No. <laughs> yeah, best catering. Um, I thought they were going to just like, uh, just put all sorts of uh, advertisements on Helen Mirren's dress, like she was on NASCAR. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. But popular movie, so that's going to be determined by ticket sales at U.S. only. What's going on? They have not yet shared the criteria. Wow. And what are the most popular movies so far this year? Well, that's so the big thing that everyone's thinking of is like, okay, is this to make sure Black Panther like gets a Best Picture nomination? Oh, great! Um, and now I, I don't know what to say. And I believe they issued it, <laughs> and I believe they issued a clarification already saying that like a film could be eligible for both, um, but because that's the thing, because it automatically creates this dichotomy where the best popular film will be thought of as like the kids' table. Like, these mm, are not the mm-hmm. real best movies of the year. Right. Um, this is best blockbuster. Um, and then that is insulting then to those movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, because like, oh, you're not good enough to be best picture. And um, one um, sort of uh, historical precedent that was pointed out was that Beauty and the Beast, I believe, was the first animated film to be nominated for best picture. Um, but then by having best animated feature, mm. um, that then voters gradually became very comfortable with like just putting all like no matter how brilliant a movie was, how brilliant a Pixar movie was, whatever. They're like, OK, well, no, we're not going to put in best picture. We'll, we'll just put in best animated feature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so uh, so it created more division um, and, you know, greater sort of, um, you know, compartmentalization between these different films and, and was limiting ultimately to animated films um, because uh, no animated films don't get nominated in best picture anymore. Um, they're just like, well, it's already going to win animated feature, obviously. So like, we don't need to celebrate here. So, you know, and, and I mean, just for what it means for the campaigns for these movies, like can a film, what if a film does not want to be thought of it in like the popular category? Like, no, we're not campaigning for best popular film. We want best film. Oh, right. Because you choose whether or not your film gets considered for an Academy Award. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can, you, yeah, you submit it, you know, you say mm-hmm. you submit for consideration or be like, okay, so, you know, we we want to be considered for best film, not best popular film. This also raises questions around like, well, where would a Netflix film go in there? Because, you know, mm. these films could be viewed more than anything, but Netflix doesn't tell anyone about their numbers, mm-hmm, generally mm-hmm. speaking. And so... Uh, I mean, they have to here, right? I mean, you would think so if they care, which they do very much about winning Oscars. Uh, so uh, it's just, just such a whole host of questions, and it's the most embarrassing thing. I mean, things could be more I embarrassing. I don't think it could be more embarrassing. Helen Mirren with a with a Mountain Dew sticker on her ass. Listen, stop fantasizing. Okay. Sorry. This is not about your Do the do. Your dream. Because <laughs> um, the Oscars, like, they are the original. The Oscars are the award show. You know, like, they started in 1927. Uh, and they they predate the rest of them. And they've always been... There like, wasn't even TV then. No, there wasn't. Uh, you know, it started off as a radio broadcast, you know, and they've always been the standard bearer for award shows. And now to... And, and also, just caving to populism is already such like a worrying trend that I, I like to think of as like our Hollywood liberal elite gets to be, you know, protected from. Um, but now it's caving. Like the ultimate prestige award, the Oscar, no more prestigious award for entertainment in the world, is now caving to populism. And is going to be giving out an Oscar for best popular film. This is so just gross um, on so many levels. And it's, 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 and oh, and another thing that I guess they're going to be doing is they're narrowing the um, window. They had, they made them move the Oscars up timeline wise um, so that now there might only be two weeks between um, announcement of nominations and the award show itself. Um, and normally that's five or six weeks. And that's where all like all the Oscar movies make usually almost like, a half of their gross mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. that window between nominations and award show. And now they're potentially narrowing it to about two weeks. That seems counterintuitive yeah. oh, to the goals. Other thing. Um, I know you have something you've looked up that you want to say. <laughs> oh, uh, wait, I was going to just say it off the top of my head. What are you uh, talking about? <laughs> thinking of the, the most popular U.S. box office sales of 2017. <laughs> I think I have it right in order, but go uh, ahead. 
Um, so here's the other funny thing. So by far the biggest beneficiary of a popular film Oscar would be um, Disney mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. because they have Marvel. Uh, mm. They have their own movies. Um, and Pixar. And guess what network Disney owns? ABC. Okay, it was ABC, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say ABC. Yeah, the very network pressing pressing these changes. Wow. Follow the money, sheeple. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why John Podesta invested in ABC. Exactly. It all comes together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what was, it, was that list that you just pulled from the top of your Ladies head? Ladies and gentlemen, the uh, 2017 nominees uh, for most popular film are, and pretend I'm with somebody else opening the album, Star Wars, The Last Jedi. Mm-hmm. Cut the trailer. <laughs> Beauty and the Beast. Mm. Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. Cut to Gal Gadot. Mm-hmm. Jumanji, welcome to the jungle. <laughs> Guys, we can't live in a world where Jumanji welcomed the jungle. Cut to a giant elephant sitting next to Meryl Streep, <laughs> covered in Mountain Dew ads. And Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2. Mm-hmm. Cut yeah. to a little raccoon in a tuxedo, sitting next to, I don't know, maybe with this like little paw on the leg of Jennifer Aniston. Oh, maybe Lupita Nyong'o. I'm kind of into it now. I don't know. Now, I sold myself a story. It. I'm into it. Now you're, yeah, well, now that, you're, now that you're picturing a raccoon in a tuxedo, of course you're on board. Of course I'm so on board. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm interested to see how these play out. Um, I feel like y- we've introduced some drama that's exciting. Um, we don't need more drama no? <laughs> in, in the news cycle. We don't. We don't need more drama coming from populism and from, like, tearing down, you know, the old sacred cows. Like, they've, they're gone. <laughs> they're all gone. Mm. Uh, all the norms, they're all gone. Um, and now we're losing this one, too, uh, to, like, turn it into the fucking People's Choice Awards. Make the Oscars great again, Jason said. <laughs> That's what I said. Um, you know, just to, you know, to paraphrase Valerie Cherish, you know, the People's Choice Award is is the most important award because it comes from the people. Um, <laughs> and now that kind of sad, pathetic quality of like, oh, this this bullshit award that I got um, as like a consolation prize because what I did what I made was not great art. Uh, now that will be a part of the Oscars as well. At least they didn't do that thing where like they uh, they get like Nicole Kidman to like go next door to the theater and like talk to random people and then have them just vote by hand what their favorite movie right. was and then that ends up being the pic- the move best picture. And, it's like Joe that, visiting from Ohio. What did you and, like? And that's how Shape of Water. And that's how the award was retroactively awarded to Norbit. Uh, <laughs> a number of years later, it was long um, overdue. Long overdue. I mean. Because, like, and if that, you know, they could start doing it for acting, too, to be like, okay, well, where's the, because, you know, part of the thing that, I think part of the thing that they won't take into account is that people, it's not the movies that people care about, it's, like, the stars. And so if they're still not nominating, like, the stars of these, like, big blockbuster movies, you know, people turn into um, award shows to see the stars they want to see. Yeah, I mean, see. okay, so let's go back to that list again. If, we, if there right. was to be that list, like, like if who Chris would Pratt was nominated there? for an Oscar. Um, Star Wars The Last Jedi, uh, who would be there? Yeah, I mean, if you had like if you had like Mark Hamill and if you had like Daisy Ridley and John Boyega, which I mean, that's the thing. The Oscars already usually bring those people yeah. in to be announcers, um, and this is why I feel like it's just a losing game. Like I think, like yeah, are the Oscars people increasing? Are there. Yeah. Except the cast of Jumanji. <laughs> well, even, the even I think well, I think Dwayne Johnson and, yeah. and Jack Black have been on the Oscars. Uh, so that's the, like that's the thing is that like well the, James Gunn could be there. They're already they're already trying to do all these things to like bring people in, and I think that. I, I think that it's just they just have to accept that like yeah they're an old people award show mm-hmm. like you know mm-hmm. like unless they can get like that k-pop group to show up like i don't they're you know or like you know taylor swift i don't think that they're going to get the kids like they've lost the kids the kids aren't coming back but of course you're not going to tell a giant corporation that they no. will they will not take no you get less money as an answer Mm-mm. so so i'm interested to see how you uh, learn to cope with this over the next few months <sighs> like there isn't already enough uh rebecca that's what's up with me. What is up with you? Uh, I'm going to go with film-related news. I saw a movie this week that's not in our list to be reviewed. Um, it's called Christopher Robin, hmm. and it is sweet and adorable and kind and just very zen and precious. And it, I was going into it, and I was a little afraid it was going to be like, this ain't your daddy's boo. Like, this boo's here to rock, you know, because the way they do the thing with do all the those poo. things. Right, exactly. And he's like twerking his like big round butt. 
um, which would be also cute. Um, yeah, I love that little butt. Yeah, his like head stuck in the funny honey jar and his butt's twerking. Um, yeah, he is a snack. <laughs> he's always hungry. Um, he's a snack who wants snacks. Right? Aren't we all? Mm-hmm. Um, it's adorable. It's precious. And um, I absolutely loved it. And I cried so much. Yeah, I was going to ask. I think how... I have an eye irritation still. I was going to ask how much of it you actually saw. Um, how much of it your eyes were not just swollen shut for? I mean, I right off the bat, there was some dumb movie that I started crying at, trailer. And then after that was the trailer for Dumbo, which I now have to be like on alert about because mm-hmm. it's going to come up and I'm not going to be expecting it. And then one time accidentally, I saw a gif of the animated Dumbo playing along with Sarah McLaughlin <laughs> and I lost it at work. I just had to like Oof. go to the bathroom for the next two hours. So um, I'm not prepared for the, the Dumbo world that we're about to, to enter. Mm-hmm. But um, Christopher Robin... Starts off very sad, and it gets less sad as it goes on. So I saw the whole end of the movie for sure. Mm, okay, well, that's good. And then, uh, so what? Uh, what grade would you give Christopher Robin? Binge it, binge, binge it. it. It's wow. like, um, it's like it's not quite uh, a Zootopia. It has like a Mister Rogers feel to it. Hmm. It has a very like calming Just decency. Yeah, and it's beautiful. Like the way they sort of have like you know when you go to the the thousand hundred acre wood, mm-hmm. um, and, and the animated bear. Like it's hard to capture that like. Is, is he a stuffed animal? Is he a bear? Is he... He doesn't... It's not like Uncanny Valley. He doesn't look too realistic. Hmm. Um, but the way he interacts with the world is very, very nice. Um, it's very cute. Isn't... Didn't Vulture run a thing today that was like how it's all about like a sad midlife crisis or something like that? Well, that says more about me than it does about the movie, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, aren't I just busted? Yeah, yeah, I don't like this gotcha journalism. I mean, the, the the point of the movie is don't work so much. So, oh well, that's. I mean, that same. also hit home. We can, home. We could take that all to heart. Mm-hmm. I believe you also saw another movie uh, since we uh, talked what about did, it on oh, the show. I, yeah, I saw um, the Blind Spot. No, we talked about this one already. We didn't talk about it on the show. Blindsided. Oh, right. Blind spotted. Yeah, right. we did. We talked about it last week. Well, you talked about the blind side. You didn't blind talk about side. blind spotting. Oh, right. That was it. Um, I saw blind spotting. And uh, all right. I see why you brought this up. <laughs> because we talked about it the other day. And I admitted that everything you said about blind spotting was on point. Well, thank you. So if you want to know what I think about it, just go back and listen to two weeks ago's episode. And if you listen I to that episode, you might recall that Rebecca reflexively assumed I would be racist mm-hmm. um, by not embracing I mean, the I, that's still not not true. And that will still happen tonight when I talk about Black Klansmen. But, oh, <laughs> but for blind spotting, she wound up agreeing with point. me. The, the chemistry is fun and energetic. It's unbalanced. It's weird. Um, it's good, but it's not great. Um, uh, I did enjoy it. It's no sorry to bother you. A little heavy handed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No sorry to bother you. Um, And the last thing that's up with me is I've been flirting with the idea of going to TIFF for a couple of days this year. So trying to trying to weigh in on that uh, to, um, yeah, uh, be able to ding it along with you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That'd be fun. I feel like that'd be a full circle moment for us. Really would. We uh, the binge goes on the road. Mm -hmm. Should we take all the stuff? Binge spotting. (laughs) Should we take all the stuff and do uh, a live show? Maybe. We'll see. Yeah. Um, but now, for the movies of this week, the first one we have to discuss is Black Klansman. It's the early 1970s, and Ron Stallworth is the first African-American detective to serve in the Colorado Springs Police Department. Determined to make a name for himself, Stallworth bravely sets out on a dangerous mission, infiltrate and expose the Ku Klux Klan. The young detective soon recruits a more seasoned colleague into the undercover investigation of a lifetime. Together, they team up to take down the extremist hate group as the organization aims to sanitize its violent rhetoric to appeal to the mainstream. The KKK is planning an attack. How do you propose to make this investigation? We'll establish contact over the phone. We'll need a white officer to play me when they meet face to face. You for the white race, Ron? Oh, hell yeah. So there becomes a combined Ron Stallworth. Can you do that? With the right white man, we can do anything. So similar to the name of your Wi-Fi, this is a Spike Lee joint. What? I don't know why you called it that either. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I respect the man, you mm-hmm. know, let me mm-hmm. make that clear. Yeah. Let me make that very clear at the outset of this review, you know, I'm nothing but respect for Spike Lee as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. It's right there in my Wi-Fi. And let's see, the last time we saw him was his Chirac? Uh, Chirac? Yeah, I believe Chirac was his mm-hmm. last uh, feature before and? this one. And and and, and, I, and I like that one better. And what do you think of this one? <laughs> what are you giving it? <laughs> Let's keep moving. 
<clears throat> We've talked about the Oscars a lot. We gotta we gotta keep it running. We have a firm <laughs> cap on this. Um, and then we're gonna talk about the most popular movie of the week. And then we'll have our Mountain Dew pick and uh, Mountain <laughs> Dew pick of the week. Do do today's Mountain Dew pick. The week is oh shit. Okay, Christopher Robin. So, Sorry. Uh, yeah, you already you already covered that. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> so I feel, you know, uh, I will just own right now that I feel uneasy going into this review um, to criticize Black Lands. Oh, I can't wait. Hold on. Yeah, settle in. Let me settle in. <laughs> Wish I would have had the chance to yeah, see this just, one. There just, were no screenings just, available. Just shuffle your deck of race cards and get ready. <laughs> what am I going to start with? <laughs> okay, so um, so what we have here is a true story. Um, and uh, it's the story is exactly as you outlined in the synopsis. And uh, the main character, Von Stallworth, this, uh, the first black detective in Colorado Springs history, is played by John David Washington, who I did not realize at the time I was watching it is actually the son of Denzel. Oh. Yes. So Denzel Washington's son is the lead of this movie. And um, yeah, it's about him, you know, going undercover to infiltrate the KKK chapter in Colorado Springs. And uh, so, I mean, it's a very, uh, you know, like, the, the, the bones are all there in place in terms of, like, having the structure of really compelling, ripping, uh, yeah, undercover movie. You know, like, it's it, it has, it's, it's, it's all there, and it's a really broad, accessible, um, it's hard to call it entertaining, just because so much of it is so um, excruciating to mm. hear and sit through. Um, I think I was asking Ingu for her thoughts on it. And, um, Friend of the show, and okay. and um, and I think she was like, well, yeah. She's like, obviously, it kind of felt like, you know, spending two hours fifteen minutes in like a four chan thread. Um, <laughs> so, so of course that's not fun. Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, she pointed out that um, that part of what she thinks is valuable about this is the way that Spike Lee is connecting the dots between uh, how the civil rights era of the sixties, um, sparked, uh, an era of white, um, resentment and retaliation. And she, uh, feels like Spike Lee is pointing to what we're going through right now as being something similar. Mm. We're eight years of an Obama presidency, um, has now sparked this, you know, backlash of, uh, of white supremacist retaliation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I think that's, I think that's probably, I think, well, not probably, it is true. And, um, and I mean, everything Spike Lee says in this movie is true. It's just h- how he says it, uh, that I take issue with. Uh, this movie is a polemic. It is a straight up polemic. It is artless. Um, the dialogue and characters are as threadbare as they come. Um, it is a movie that serves only as um, as a delivery system for Spike Lee's personal sense of outrage. And and is he right to be outraged? Of course he is. Everyone should be outraged. Um, but everything he does, every choice he makes in this movie is just the most obvious possible choice at every turn. And he has this tendency to just lay everything on so thick. Um, there's a scene where... Uh, you know, let's go white police chief talking to Ron Stallworth in the hallway. And, um, and, uh, and he's saying like, well, I think, you know, how, how racism is going to happen. The way to get people on board with racism is to put things up on the bill for vote and for public issues for debate, um, where it looks like it's about one thing, but really it's about racism. So you talk about the economy and you talk about migration, immigration, and then, you know, and then you get people on board with that. And then eventually what happens is you get a president elected who stands for all of that. And of course I could have stopped right there because we all were like, yep, you're, yep. You're talking about Trump. Yep. We get it. And, mm-hmm. but then Ron mm-hmm. Sawworth is like, no, that would never happen. And then the white guy is like, oh no, I think it really might happen someday. Just you wait. Things like that, where you're like, okay, mm, you're insulting mm. the audience's intelligence. Like, you know, mm. the, the the points you're making here are not so far fetched and so elaborate that you need to like show your work. Like, let me let me make it very clear what I'm saying here. Like, we fucking get it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and especially the people who are watching this movie are going to get yeah, it. Yeah, that's the question. Who's the audience? Right? Yeah, right. The audience is liberals, so the audience are people who already agree with Spike Lee. Like, white supremacists aren't going to go see this movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, so I feel like he could have been a lot more nuanced and subtle. Grant subtlety has never, but never, but never been his strong point. Right. 
Um, uh, but it just feels especially just artless and, and full on and obvious and, uh, and just really just brimming with so much anger, um, which again is, is needed. Uh, but especially the way that he, I think I was telling you, it reminded me of, um, that, uh, old family guy throwaway moment where, um, Peter says something about like, oh, this has about as much dimension as a white guy in a Spike Lee movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they cut to like a throwback to do the right thing with like Spike Lee's character being like, hey, can you guys slice a pizza? And they cut to Danny Aiello just like going like, <laughs> just like foaming in the mouth and like eyes bulging out, throwing his arms around. Um, and that is very true here. Um, and of course, I mean, the white characters in this movie who are the villains are, um, clansmen. So yeah, mm-hmm. like, of course they should be that way. Uh, but they are also and David Duke is played by David none Duke, other than by one Mr. Christopher Grace <laughs> alias Topher <laughs> um, and he plays David Duke as a Ned Flanders type uh, which, <laughs> which is uh, which is you know chilling in its own way mm-hmm. um, but uh, in in some ways I was reading um, one piece of thought in the movie that in a way it kind of lets white audiences off the hook by only having basically two different kinds of white people in the movie there are the Klansmen who are foaming at the mouth, you know, like, you know, raging lunatics, one of whom is played by um, the actor from I, Tonya, who was the uh, mm. the dummy. Oh, like the, that the, one. The dumb fat dude. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, he's made for this role. He is, I mean, and it's so, he basically is playing a character from like, I spit on your grave. Like mm. he, he, is, he, he is constantly breathing through his mouth um, and just like eyes kind of half closed and he's just like, <sighs> yeah. You do that too well. Thank you. Um, you know, listen, I'm white too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I we, know. We can all do it. Um, but uh, but yeah, so you have those guys, and obviously the white liberal audiences are going to watch this and be like, oh, well, I'm not that white person. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other white characters are the other uh, cops and detectives, um, all basically all of whom but one are kind of on this evolution over the course of the movie where they you know all come around to where Ron Stallworth is, um, is, is representing, except for one racist cop, um, who gets a comeuppance. Mm. Uh, mm. so, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so it kind of like, there's so white it's, cops are the heroes here, huh? That's crazy. Well, you know, I mean, it shows them as being supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably, you know, the story, uh, sure, that, that's yeah, what Ron, story. because it's based on Ron Stallworth wrote a book that was the source material for this. Um, so yeah, so it kind of, you know, it doesn't have, it's just so not nuanced that it doesn't even have any sort of like place for actually condemning uh, what the average white viewer might not realize is the ways that they do participate in racism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, instead, it just creates these two sort of like these, these, these polar opposite areas of like, you, you know, foaming the mouth, insane, violent racists who organize into mobs to kill people. Um, and then, you know, cops who are, you know, are learning how to be more supportive. So, um, so it's, you know, it misses the mark in that way. And if, in case there was any, in case there was any, still any lack of clarity or understanding on the part of, uh, the audience, after you've watched all these clan rallies where the characters are all cheering, make America great. Mm-hmm. Um, it ends with about 10 minutes or so of, of, of footage from the Charlottesville, um, oh, wow. riots. Interesting. And uh, including the um, the car incident that killed oh, yeah. Heather Heyer, mm-hmm. and um, and it's and it just yeah it just is just is just pummeling you know it's a polemic like any 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 claims that it had to not being a polemic it lost the second that it shoved that in at the end mm. and that I guess that happened after they were already done with the movie um, but then Spike Lee was like gotta put it in you know gotta put it in he reached out to Heather Heyer's mother to get her approval to put it in oh, wow. um, so. So yeah, it's just sort of this issue of like, how can a filmmaker be like a hundred percent right, and also make a movie that absolutely like courses and vibrates with energy, um, uh, but also just be so flawed uh, in um, in a lot of the other attributes of what makes a great movie. Hmm. So it's a real it's a real contradiction. It seemed like a movie where um, I had seen the trailer for this movie a couple of times recently, and um, I had immediately was like i wish i hadn't seen the trailer because i i felt like i didn't need to see the movie Mm. you know it's sort of like laid out exactly like what Mm -hmm. what the arc was going to be right um and i i do think there is a kind of a kind of viewer that you and i I think are are watch the news a lot like Mm -hmm. i at least for work like 
Right. I'm way too familiar with with these with what's going on, and 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 you are a news junkie. Right. Um, I do think that there are people who even and a lot of people we know also like know what's going on, mm-hmm. but like like we found out a friend of ours didn't know who Alex Jones was this week. Right. And so to us, that's that's. It's common knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we subscribe to him. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <Right. laughs> we take the supplements. Um, do the do. But there, but there might be a group of, of viewers who um, who might be kind of energized by this connection, who aren't as who don't follow things as closely, and mm-hmm. maybe don't make those make those uh, point those dots together, or know about this the the how um, the clan was still so active and has still been so active in, in right. the 70s and 80s um, in, in parts of the country. Right. And then, you know, and he does also include in that final bit, you know, David Duke's endorsement of Trump. Right, right. Um, but, you know, to again be like, yep, this that thing I said could happen, it happened. Um, yeah, and I think that like, you know, people who uh, write articles on the internet are also on Twitter all the time. Like we're really immersed in the news in a way that I, I think that a lot of people aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, so there maybe there is a, a, a different perspective that, that could appreciate yeah. this and where we'd be like, of course this is bad. Of right. course we've known this for years. Right. Yeah, no, that's totally possible. Um, Not although, to say that you're racist. Although, again, racist. although I don't know, um, I don't know that those people would then go out and see this movie because um, I feel like it's right. The title is already so abrasive, you know, Black Klansman with the KKK in the middle. Yeah, I guess I don't mean people so, who like actively avoid the news, mm-hmm. but people who just like don't. It's not part of their pattern. They don't use you know like Twitter, and they don't. Um, but they but they go to movies, and this is a big one, and Spike mm-hmm. Lee, and um, I don't know. I think there might be an audience there. But again, I'm just guessing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess we'll see uh, how it does box office wise. Um, Will it be most popular movie? Right. It could be a contender. (laughs) You never know. Uh, But uh, but yeah, for me, it was just it's just none of the things that all the things that I look for in a movie, all the things I personally value um, in terms of, you know, well-developed characters and, 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 you know, like sort of a nuanced interior lives and, and, uh, a sense of, of compassion and humanity. Um, that's not the kind of movie he's out to make with this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know. He might think that his characters have interior lives. Um, they don't, but, uh, but you know, he clearly, he was not out to make, um, won't you be my neighbor? You know, he's mm, like, yeah, this is yeah. not the time for that. At least that's not what I'm doing. You know, Spike Lee's never been that guy. He, you know, he's a provocateur. And this is a provocative movie, that's for sure. Um, so it just happens to be super, super obvious provocative movie. Uh, what are you giving this one? Um, it's a consume for me. Um, yeah, I, I feel like it's. It, yeah, it's. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say you send it back. Um, but yeah, I just feel like it's. Is it really is coming from a, a sort of a personal place for me, where I'm just like personally, it's not the kind of movie that I look for. And also, like, I fully acknowledge that you know I'm a white dude talking about this movie, and that's not ideal. Uh, but that was my take on it. And, um, and I just, yeah, I just think the artlessness beyond just my personal preferences is, um, just glaring. Also one, one quick question going back. Um, is there a way to view this movie as looking at Ron Stallworth as a, a, like a black superhero? Um, I mean, he, his character is definitely, um, you know, sort of portrayed as almost as if the hero of like a seventies sort of black exploitation movie. Um, and they, there's also a lengthy discussion about those movies in the movie mm. um, because Spike Lee loves a good tangent. And the tangents to his, are actually the most, best parts of the movie. Um, but uh, but yeah, so it's, he's definitely presented as like this like very kick-ass figure. Um, there might e- be an audience for that as well. Even though he's also on his own journey where he um, he's kind of, I mean, he starts the film, he's kind of like, oh, come on, guys. Like, he's almost kind of naive about it. Mm. Um, and um, and he, he is kind of... He, what, happen, what, happen, what happens is he is sent to infiltrate this meeting that Stokely Carmichael is having with um, the local black student union from the local college. And he goes in as a skeptic. Um, and then he is sort of like turned around by that mm. and, and starts to sort of, you know, come into his own identity um, and you know, becomes more awake to the realities, uh, you know, for black people in America. So and then he has this sort of there's a lot of uh, what was it? Uh, I believe it's coat switching. <laughs> mm. <laughs> no, he's done a lot of code switching in the movie. Um, Black Klansman is rated R for language throughout, including racial epithets and for disturbing violent material and some sexual references. That brings us to movie number two, The Miseducation of Cameron Post. In 1993, after teenage Cameron is caught in the backseat of a car with the prom queen, she's sent away to a treatment center in a remote area called God's Promise. While she is being subjected to questionable gay conversion therapies, 
She bonds with some fellow residents as they pretend to go along with the process while waiting to be released. Oh, Jason, this movie, um, I feel like you're going to have a lot to say about it. You know, get ready for back-to-back Jason's and know-it-all-about-this-movie reviews nice. between this and Nico 1988. Excellent. Um, what? Uh, wow, where do you even begin with this one? Yeah. Uh, we have Chloe Gay... Chloe Gay... <laughs> Chloe Gay Moretz. <laughs> That's the caller in the movie. Um, who is, as we mentioned in, in the synopsis, is uh, caught making out in the back of a car in high school with her girlfriend. In 1993. Um, who times. has that not happened to? You know, me. It's happened to me. <laughs> Has it happened to you? Not at prom, but it happened to me. Oh, dear. Uh, I was making out in the car with a girl I was dating in high school, and the people who were on the cross-country team knew what my car looked like, and I was parked in the park. And so, you know, it's like you the, the guys that were running, and then, like, if they go down a path, then all the rest of them go down a path. Mm-hmm. And so they all, like, pass my car and be like, hey, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> oh, she did again. Yeah. Well, well, I didn't get in trouble, but... Well, now that you mention it, it did actually just bring back a memory for me. I wasn't I wasn't caught in a car by, like, people I knew, but I was once caught parking with a boy by a cop. Ooh. So... Um, Sexy cop? No. That was... Yeah, exactly. So then it really took a turn. <laughs> uh, no, that was an absolutely bone-chilling thing that did happen. Yeah, that sounds terrifying. Um, where, yeah, I was just, like, sort of, like, looking up, and then suddenly there's, like, this... There's like a light. I'm just like, I wonder where that light is. And then like a gloved fist just appears and starts knocking on the window. No. Uh, that was absolutely terrifying. And then so we you know, jump up and. I feel like that happened to me too as well. Yeah. I feel like it's probably a common thing. Because, you know, when you're a kid, you're, you know, you're just like, where do you go? Uh, you know, and then if one of you has a car, you're just like, all right, we'll go park it somewhere. Mm -hmm. And, um, so, and then, uh, and then, (laughs) and so then like, you know, so like we both, you know, jump up and put our seats up and, uh, and then, uh, the guy I was with like, you know, the officers like motioning to roll down the window. Um, you know, even though we were, it was long past, you know, actual crank windows to roll down (laughs) that time, but there's still no other replacement for that hand gesture. You You can't can't, put the finger down. You can't just put the finger down on the button. And, um, and so then, um, so then, you know, rolls down the window and the cop, you know, looks in and shines the flashlights in her face and that whole bit. And is like, um, uh, it's like, you guys gotta, gotta move along. <laughs> and, um, then the guy I was with was just like, oh, we're just saying, we're just hanging out. <laughs> it's all, we're just hanging out. And the cop's like, uh, he's like, listen, he's like, yeah, you can't, you can't stay here. And the guy is still like, what? I mean, we can't just hang out. We're just, oh, we're my just... God. Shut up. Yeah, I know. Um, and the cops, like, look kind of just, like, does gives, like, a Whoopi Goldberg one of these with his glasses. <laughs> and it's just like, you can't do this here. You got to move. Where were you? In a park? Uh, we were in, like, a we were in a parking lot next. You were in the middle of the drive-thru at McDonald's. <laughs> There's a line behind you. You know, when the mood strikes, the mood strikes. I mean. You know, so you're first dating someone. Um, Egg McMuffins in the air. Right, right. Uh, we'd actually crashed right through the McDonald's and we we're just sitting <laughs> in the middle of all the wreckage. Uh, no, we were, it was like, it was late, of course. It was like, probably like after 10 o'clock. And uh, and we were just in like an, an empty parking lot next to, I want to say, <laughs> I think it was actually next to a playground. So it's possible nice. that that was a... Uh, uh, you know that we were in some sort of violent. Well, we were on, we were both under eighteen at the time, so it was okay. <laughs> it's okay. I don't think it sounds great. I think it's okay. Um, but uh, but yeah, that was that was absolutely terrifying. Um, up until that point, the scariest thing that ever happened to me. Well, luckily for both of us, nothing happened like what happened to the characters in this movie, which is um, well, except for to me, but I did it to myself. But, well, but we'll come back. We'll to that. get there in a minute. <laughs> Chloe. Grace Moretz, we learn um, her parents uh, have passed away, and her aunt, who she lives with, has sent her away to gay conversion camp. Although we never even find out really who sent her. Like, they kind of skip... it was her aunt. They, although the aunt drives her, um, but she's almost making these, like, a, kind of apologetic faces. Like, you know, I think this is going to be for the best. I mean, like, who else the, can send you? It has the, to go with your family. The movie... Well, that's the thing. The movie fully skips. Like, is it the uncle? Did the uncle have a stronger point of view about it? Like, they kind of skip mm. the whole part where, like, she has to go. Um, or finds out that she has to go, or like any sort of like conversation that they had. Like the movie just doesn't show that, hmm. and that's one of the best parts. But I'm a cheerleader. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's another thing. It's really hard to watch this movie without comparing it to But I'm a Cheerleader yes. constantly. It is a dramatic But I'm a Cheerleader. It really is to its core. Like all the characters match up. Um, the the dynamics match up. Right. It's just um, a lot less fun and a lot more muted in color. <laughs> yeah. 
Unfortunately. Yes. Yeah, unless uh no RuPaul on this one. No RuPaul on this no. one. Um she goes on to make friends. Here's the thing, spoiler alert, the camp is not fun. Uh and and one of the friends she makes there is played by Sasha Lane from American Honey, whose character's name is Jane Fonda. Yes, yes. And so when she was in American Honey, she was found, right? Like yeah, she was she a found was, actress? Yeah, she was like a like a like a like a found piece of art. Like yeah, exactly. An objet d'art but actress. And uh, yeah, she was found by, she was discovered by Andrea Arnold, the director of American Honey, just on a beach somewhere. Um, and um, Nailed that movie. Yep. Drove it. And uh, and here she is again. Um, yep, she's getting work. She's defying the odds. And by the odds, I mean, I personally said many times, she will never work again after this movie. <laughs> just because I was like, I'm like, I just, I'm like, I would like there to be a place for her in like the film world, but I think she's too specific. Um, but it turns out that she's she's finding work. Uh, finding work as a, a youth in 1993. Um, perfect. Yeah, I saw. So when Chloe first um, shows up and gets out of the car, Sasha Lane is there already and like snaps a Polaroid right into her face and kind of like smirks at her and walks away. In one review, I said so it was like like the perfect quirky best friend from a movie from the 90s. <laughs> right. That's that's the exact character introduction they give Sasha Lane in this movie. Um, what, what did you feel, um, what did this bring up for you, Jason? <laughs> God. Um, well, I, I'm more interested for right now and just like, what, how, what did you think of how, what it depicted in terms of what, go, what went on at this camp mm-hmm. and, um, you know, like the classes that they would do and the exercises they would do and like the dynamics. So the, 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 the camp interestingly is run, um, by, uh, by a woman played by Jennifer Ely. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's feeling all Ely. <laughs> um, and then um, this sort of like chipper dude played by John Gallagher Jr. It is really, really so... Like, how did they make these characters like so aligned with But I'm a Cheerleader? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's really uncanny. Uh, yeah, so so Jennifer Ely is John Moriarty. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, and then John Gallagher Jr. is... I don't know the name of the boy. The yeah, guy. yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there's her son, Eddie Cibrian. This, oh, this right, movie's yeah. also missing an Eddie Cibrian. No, I guess it's the same. Yeah, so there's um, there's no hunky gardener lo- uh, lurking around the grounds, <laughs> they wielding put those two characters together, wielding a hoe. So what, so when I saw but I'm a cheerleader, yeah, um, I didn't really think of this is going to sound so terribly ignorant of conversion camps as like a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I saw this movie, and kind of halfway through, I was like, oh wow, this is a thing. And then something came up um, this week about conversion camps in real life and i it really finally hit me that they're a thing right that they are actually something that people send people to um so then i kind of like you know thought about this movie again in in that light um and it seemed a lot more um benign than i thought it would be Mm, interesting yeah yeah no i mean i that's that's an interesting point that you know it is because it the way it's depicted in this movie there it, there's no like savage beatings mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. like it's really just like it's like a series of sort of therapy sessions mm-hmm. um but th- the interesting thing that comes out of this particular situation um is when a series of unfortunate events happens and uh chloe grace moretz's character confronts the people who run it and, and just say you have no idea what you're doing mm-hmm. you're figuring this out as you go along right which that that i, I really kind of struck me as as a really uh perceptive thing for youth to say first of all mm. and kind of how these things work and how things work in general um that are ultimately um maybe it was i don't know not what not what one expected because it was poorly run mm. um and right. sort of sort of um driverless right it's like, you call this a gay conversion camp? <laughs> <laughs> I was disappointed right. at the severity with which you converted your gays. Should have checked Yelp. Um, and I just wanted to say there was one part that, that kind of um, rung true was the way that her, her character is manipulated by the girl that she was dating and this idea of feeling like you are turning people gay and that it's your fault and that mm. you are like mm, mm, uh, exploiting friendships. Right. Um, that I had a, a struggle with that for a very long time. Yeah. Um, because uh, I did it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like it's something you don't really think about. Um, someone's ownership right. or agency in a relationship when you're when you're a kid, but when you're when I feel like when you're gay, mm-hmm. um, it's very much present always. Yeah. You know that's that's an interesting point. Um, that makes sense. I didn't think about how that would connect for you, but but yeah, that makes sense because yeah, there's there's that kind of that that sense of 
you know, an intimate partner could betray you by saying, you know, like when you are with somebody, then there's, there's a, you know, sort of like a social contract that like, mm. you know, we're both doing this, we're, cons- and this is consensual and we're together. And, um, and then I think especially in situations where maybe one person's sexuality is a bit more unsure, or a bit more fluid, um, and especially in situations where there might be societal pressure or family pressure to like deny mm-hmm, that you mm-hmm, did it, mm-hmm. um, where, yeah, they can just turn around and be just like, yeah, they, they manipulated me into doing it. Um, and I can't, it's a severe knifing betrayal. Yeah. That's, and that's something that's uh, stuck with me for a really long time. Uh, being worried, always just being worried of like, I don't know, did I, did I do something? I don't know. Un, not untoward, but I, did, did I, was I, was I clever in a way? Is this genuine? Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah. You're like, am I, am I too goddamn smart for my own goddamn good? <laughs> is it this face? <laughs> is it this ass? <laughs> Damn it, God. Am I just drawn to really dumb women who are <laughs> easy to manipulate? <laughs> uh, you know, all the above. <laughs> back to you. <laughs> you're like, no, you're embarrassing stuff. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, as, uh, I, I don't know if I've talked about this in the show before. I feel like I probably have. Um, but when, from the time that I was 17 to when I was 23, uh, I was an evangelical Christian and I was anti-gay, but I had already come out as gay. And so it, uh, was a period of my life where I was telling anyone who would listen that it was actually wrong to be gay. Um, so, which it talk about betrayal. Um, I was using my um, my sort of my membership as a gay person to tell mm. other people who already wanted an excuse to think being gay was wrong. I was like, no, that's right. You are right. It is wrong. Don't listen to the culture. Culture is full of lies. Uh, you know, like the path to fa- and, and, and when I said wrong, what I meant was against um, just unfaithful to um, God and unfaithful to um, a Christian life. So... Um, you know, not like you icky, just like, oh, well, this is just, you know, I can't find a way around this in my reading of the Bible, the reading of the Bible that I had at the time. And, um, and so I spent that whole time, um, sort of actively telling anyone who I could meet, like, listen, like you listen to me, you can take it from me. I, 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 I can say this. It's bad. We all know it. Um, they won't tell you that, but you know, we all sense it. Uh, a lot of horrible things. And um, and then I, entirely through my own choosing, This all of this, by the way, all of this was my own doing. All of it was my own choosing. Nobody manipulated me into doing this. And, um, you know, and then it got to the point where I did start to seek out. The funny thing was I never actually wanted to be straight. Um, like mm. that to me was not like the end game for this. For me, the end game was basically just like um, being um, celibate. So I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to be celibate the rest of my life. <laughs> no, I practically am. <laughs> um, but uh, so uh, so that was just my, I was like, I don't want to become straight because <laughs> in spite of everything, the thing I cherished most was just all of my friendships with like, because I've only my whole life ever had female friends. Mm. And the idea of suddenly being like straight uh, was really horrifying to me because I was like, well, then I feel like my, my girlfriends won't be able to trust me anymore. We won't be able to like be themselves around me anymore. Um, because in that moment, I was like, well, it could happen. I could become straight. Anything's possible. Um, Can with, you imagine? It's tough to picture, right? Um, but yeah, I was like, with God, all things are possible. So it could happen. Who knows? Um, but uh, but instead, I was like, well, I need some support um, in this. And um, and so I started to, um, despite the fact that it turns out that almost every guy in my ministry group was also gay. Um, turns out, hindsight, um, I started to go to an ex-gay therapy group in Akron at the U of Akron. And, um, it was tied to Exodus international, which uh, mm-hmm. is sort of the biggest name in, uh, in ex gay stuff. And, and just to clarify it, are these, is this, it's not a conversion. It's post conversion. Well, well, it's not, you mean conversion to Christianity? No. Uh, uh, conversion to straight life. Well, no. So I think that, uh, not for you personally, like this group. Well, I think that, so I think it's a kind of, a. Mm, so it's, I want to, I, I guess I should make it clear that this is, this is distinct from a, a, a camp where they try to force you. I think that's, I think it's a misconception, honestly, that these camps are not, and I think with kids, it's different when there's, you know, with youths, there's a sense that you, <laughs> with, with the youths, there's a sense that they can be shaped still. I think once you cross over into dealing with adults, you're not thinking like, okay, you're going to be forced to be straight. Um, I think it's very much, it's basically the whole model is, is this sort of very warped approach of, to therapy. 
um, to just, so that's why it's just all the talking, all the therapy, all the sessions where you're just trying to unlearn these like harmful cultural ideas that we've all been ingrained with and just, you know, let yourself be open to God's truth. And so I don't, I think that there, while there are camps that actually are for kids to be put into, um, where there is, I think a more aggressive sense that like, you're still young, you're still malleable, we can still change you. That's not something that they do for adults, really. Mm. Um, it really is just, and, it, and I was there because I wanted to be there. And I think that, and I was the youngest person by a comical degree. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone else was like over 55 at least and was, oh, just, wow. and was just looking at me like, kid, you got your whole life to go sin. You can come back and do this when you're old like us. <laughs> then you can atone. Don't do it now. <laughs> go have fun. Uh, so, um, but yeah, so it was something that I sought out and I read all of their material and, and, um, and I was just like, yep, this is it. This is all, this is, this is all the way it is. And, uh, so yeah, I was in hook, line and sinker and, um, and, uh, and, but then, you know, I kind of had my own falling out with that sort of standard that I'd held myself to for all those years and was in San Francisco within a few months. Um, but, uh, so yeah, so I think that, so I think that your sense watching this movie that you're like, oh, it wasn't as harsh as I thought it would be. That definitely rang true with me because when you go to these things, like they're not harsh. Um, you know, like it really is, you know, they're just trying to basically administer to you. Like their motivation is to care for you and it's very misguided and misdirected, but what they think they are doing is they are helping you to live a better life and to leave behind a harmful practice. So for them, with their jobs in their mind, they're no different than people who are working at like a rehab. Um, They're like, we're helping you unlearn your harmful behavior. And there's also the add spiritual dimension of they're helping you to claim your freedom and victory in Christ. Uh, So like that to them is what drives them, not this hate for gay people um, and not a sense of like, you know, you must be straight to live. Um, so, so, and I think that that kind of nuance gets lost in a lot of the sort of caricatures that, that have been portrayed about how these places are. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So what are you giving me? <laughs> 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 um, I don't know. Is there anything else to say about this? Um, no, I don't think so. <laughs> no. Uh, Wild Yop, uh, a band in that movie is so good. Check them out. Um, and there is, yeah, there's some nice 90s music cues. There's yeah. um, the most relatable moment, as I was saying to you the other night, was a scene where Chloe's character tries to steal a cassette copy of The Breeders' Last Splash mm. while on a trip into town. There's a little uh, uh, wooden spoon karaoke to uh, What's Up? By Four Non Blondes. Mm-hmm. And I just read today that they actually shot that scene um, the day after the election. Oh, really? Yes. And so, <laughs> they, so yeah, the, the filmmaker of this movie, rather director, Desiree Akhavan, um, said that they were like in between shooting that well, on breaks so of shooting that they watched Hillary's concession speech. Oh man! And 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 she said so that was she, like that day you know is like immortalized for us in that scene in the movie and that wow. it felt very cathartic. Yeah. Um. To to do that scene in that moment and that is it's, I could kind of see it. Yeah, you could kind of feel it in the movie. Yeah. Like there's something that feels like they're really like shaking something loose. Um. In yeah. Because and that's that's why, what's up. You know, it's a powerful song. It really is. I I hated it for a long time, and now I'm I've succumbed uh, yeah. to its magic. And and I will say that also Desiree Akhavan's last movie, um, called Appropriate Behavior, is amazing. She also wrote and directed it and starred in it. And it's a sort of look at what her life. It's sort of semi autobiographical story about her life as a bisexual Iranian American woman. Mm. And it's it's so fresh and so funny. Um. So I would recommend that one over this one. This one I give it a consume. Hmm. Um. Yeah. I guess it gets like a consume plus for me. I um. I thought it was interesting. I, it's so hard to shake yeah. the but I'm a cheerleader. If you have someone, if you have, if you haven't seen it, but I'm a cheerleader. This is going to be a completely different movie for you. Yeah, um, I think that's probably true. Yeah, I just realized I didn't actually say anything one way or the other about the movie. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I'm like, well, it's a consume, and then I'm like, oh, I actually haven't set that up at all. Um. I guess I just found it was it was like just like a a, a weaker, more dramatic version of I'm a cheerleader. Um. It is. You know, it's beautifully shot. Um, and the acting, for the most part, is really strong. Jennifer Ely is terrifying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. John Gallagher Jr., I think there's a lot of interesting sort of ambiguity in mm-hmm. his performance um, and ambivalence. The chemistry between the the what they, students, the campers, mm-hmm. um, is sweet, especially like the, kind of the three main characters that, yeah. that, that hang out. Yeah. Um, 
But it's hard to watch. It's sad, uh, but ultimately not, you know, not like in a uh, like emotional porn type way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess to me, it was just very meh. Like, I mean, that's literally what our consumed category is for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. That it's, okay. Is a... it's okay, but it's kind of meh. I feel like this is textbook that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Miseducation of Cameron Post is unrated, but would probably be R for language and sexual content. And that brings us to our last movie of the week, Nico 1988, which is our pick of the week. Approaching age 50, singer-songwriter Nico leads a solitary existence. Far from her days as a Warhol superstar and celebrated vocalist for the Velvet Underground in the 1960s. Her life and career on the fringes, Nico's new manager convinces her to hit the road again and tour in Europe to promote her latest album. Struggling with demons and the consequences of a muddled life, she longs to rebuild a relationship with her son, whose custody she lost long ago. Apologies, no trailers for the last two movies this week, but Jason is happy to do his Nico impression for you, <laughs> if that helps. Yeah, actually, uh, my friend Andrew, Andrew Hamm, friend of the show, um, we used to have a, a thing we would do in college where we would like sing the hits as Nico. Uh, you would sing what? It was almost, it's sort of like, oh, shari- it's like Shariokey, but like Nikooki. Nikooki, uh-huh. Um, it was like, you know, my loneliness is killing me <laughs> and I must confess I still believe. That kind of thing. I like Shariokey much better. Yes. Shariokey is definitely a lot more fun because um, Cher is more fun than Nico, turns out. <laughs> Nico, not the picture of fun. Um, but uh, but yes, no, I, I this is this <laughs> this is another one of those things, you know, similar to the sort of the context you were trying to give to the Black Klansman thing where like I might be too close to it. Um, mm. to be like, what does the everyman think of this movie? Um, because I have been a really big Nico fan for a long time, going back to like, I don't know, like 96, somewhere around there. And um, then I have all her albums. I'm super familiar with her whole discography. And this movie uh, is sort of taking as granted that the vast majority of audiences, if they have heard of Nico at all, only know her from the Velvet Underground and Nico, uh, which was the first album by the Velvet Underground produced by Andy Warhol. Um, Nico had kind of come up out of, you know, she grew up in Berlin during World War II, and um, and then she started to work as a model because she was one of the world's most beautiful women who's ever lived. That sounds like a straight man to me. <laughs> you know, it's uh, somewhat still in there, you know, anything's possible with God. And um, she's one of the most beautiful women who's ever lived. She got unbelievably beautiful. Um, and so she worked as a model and then she did some acting and she had a, a she has a role actually in Fellini's La Dolce Vita. Mm. Um, and uh, and then she started to kind of come up in the pop music world. She put out these hilariously pop singles with Andrew Luke Oldham. Um, and then she kind of fell in with the Warhol crowd and he, she was amused to him. And then he just kind of forced her into the Velvet Underground. It was not, they were not formed with her. It's like a boy band. Yeah, it was, you know, well, it wasn't because Maureen Tucker was the drummer. Um, but it was not. Right. But, oh yeah. What about, how how about, about her? How about, how about Mo Tucker? Um, but Lou Reed did not want Nico in the band, but Andy insisted that she be in the band if they wanted his like backing and publicity and all that stuff. And, um, Velvet Underground and Nico is uh, is to date, of course, one of the most um, celebrated seminal rock albums of the 20th century, and uh, as such, she will forever be associated with it. Um, but she, most people don't know, uh, continued to make music mm. after that, and she had a first album that still is very tied to that because um, I think like Lou Reed and John Cale were all over it, um, and it had her her version of Jackson Brown's These Days. Which mm-hmm. is probably her most famous solo song, yeah, because um, it was in the Royal Tenenbaums. Ian Matthews' version of that song is absolutely gorgeous. I have not heard it. Oh my god! I will look it up. We'll uh, link it to the show. And uh, but then after that, so after this singer songwriter album that she did, Chelsea Girl, uh, she started to do all of her own music. And wow, did it take a turn? So she is sort of thought of as a rap f- rock. She the mother <laughs> of rap rock. Watch out! Watch out, Lincoln Park. <laughs> You know, if you, have, if you haven't seen Fred Durst constantly shouting her out, uh, <laughs> uh, then then you uh, are, aren't listening to Fred Durst enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when I said Fred Durst, I was like, wait, is that the guy from the Jinx? No, that was Robert Durst. Oh, my God. Um, Durst. First, last name, turns out. But Nico started to make these, these very, very bizarre, unexpected records um, that many uh, people point to as sort of forebears to, like, gothic music. Um, like goth, new wave, are both kind of foreshadowed in a way by her music. 
Um, but also her music is just entirely its own thing. Like she would write these original songs that sounded like thousand year old dirges. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had that haunting, very heavily German accented foghorn of a voice. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she kept making music to the rest of her life. Um, you know, starting that was called the Marble Index was the first one after Chelsea Girl. And then she kept going through the 70s, through the 80s. And she died in 1988 at the age of 49. And you thought you listened to this podcast about movies. <laughs> and um, and she was also um, and so she was, you know, I feel like, yeah, there's a more direct comparison you could make to someone almost like Bjork, um, where you, they're just making entirely their own soundscapes. Mm. And um, that was what Nico did. And um, and a lot of people thought it was unlistenable. And um, and always only want to talk to her about the Velvet Underground, which is something that comes up for sure in this movie. So back to Nico 1988. <laughs> um, it, uh, it chronicles Nico's life in the final three years um, that she was on this earth. And um, and she at this point is very much she's, you know, so this ravaged heroin addict. Um, she has long since dyed her hair black to renounce her her looks. Um, and uh, and she is just kind of just bumbling around Eastern Europe in a van with a, with a bunch of, of, you know, session players, um, to, you know, make money and also to score heroin. And, um, and, you know, the movie just kind of reckons with sort of like a forgotten artist. Um, Mm. you know, this idea of somebody who, um, will always be tied to this one thing that happened so long ago. And, and then everything they've done since then is just, you know, sort of swatted away. Um, you know, in interview after interview after interview in this movie, you know, people are just like, so here you are. It's Lou Reed's femme fatale. And she's mm. like, don't call me that. I don't like it. Um, and uh, and they're like, oh, okay. But I mean, the Velvet Underground, though. And she's like, yes, I was in that for a year. I've made many albums since then. And they're like, oh. Uh, so, um, yeah, so it's, you know, so it's this really interesting portrait of, yeah, of just sort of this artist who had this moment of fame, this brush with fame that ultimately was kind of the worst thing that could have happened to them. Um, because then they're sort of held to that brief moment of fame of the rest of their lives and everything that they do since is kind of eclipsed by it. This is, sounds like, I mean, it, the way you describe it sounds like the antithesis of a, good, of a good movie. You have this like really dynamic life and then you're just showing the last three years where the person doesn't want to talk about is like just constantly mildly annoyed <laughs> that everyone keeps asking them about these really exciting things. Um, why is it the pick of the week? Uh, it's the pick of the week, um, because I, I think it actually is a really interesting approach to take. I think it's the thing that we talk about with biopics where you just like narrow in mm-hmm. on like this mm-hmm. sliver. And I think like, I think it's, it's really interesting to ask like what happens to an artist after they're forgotten? Um, because they continue to live. They can, and in the case of Nico, she continued to make art mm-hmm. and, um, and arguably it was, you know, some of the most interesting unheralded music that any female singer songwriter was making, um, certainly at the time. Uh, so I think that in the case of Nico, it's because her story was interesting enough. Um, mm, and she, mm. as a person was interesting enough and it kind of, the movie lives and dies with the actress who plays her, this Danish actress named Trina Deerholm, who does all her own singing in the movie as well. No, I you were going to say stunts. Does all her own stunt singing. And, and, uh, and she doesn't really try, I, as brilliant as she is in the movie, uh, she is just almost too present. Uh, you know, when you see Nico, you watch these old performances of her, and she's just gl- this glazed over, like, German space alien. Mm. Um, and, you know, most of the performances, she just sat hunched over this harmonium um, and, you know, never stood up. In this movie, she has a bit, a few, like, rock god moments where I'm just like, she never once in her life ever did that. Um, and you know, the actress is just so present and so emotionally alert to things in a way that I feel like Nico through her like heroin mm. phase, you know, heroin, uh, um, heroin fog kind of never was. Um, but it's a great performance all the same. So being close to it, um, yeah. let's, let's try for a moment if you can, um, pretend because this is, this is not a documentary. This is, right. um, uh, this as is you a, mentioned, there's an actress. Yes. If this was a fictional story, mm-hmm. would you think, would you, would it still be your pick of the week? Um, I would still say it's better than the other two movies. Yeah. Um, easily. Um, and, uh, cause I think it's just a really fascinating character study. I Mm -hmm. think that, you know, even if you watch the movie, you don't know who Nico is. I think that, um, the character is presented with enough detail and flaws and contradictions. Um, and the, and the performance driving it is so magnetic. Um, and, uh, and it is on such a small scale and there is enough sort of drama that happens along the way. It's just sort of like a, it's like a a fringe of the entertainment world kind of story, sort of like a backstage drama, Mm -hmm. Um, so I think there's enough there to make it interesting. Um, I actually read a book 
back when I was a teenager called Nico the End that was written by her keyboardist for these final tours that she was on, um, James Young. And it is one of the most darkly hilarious memoirs I've ever read. Um, and, uh, and this gets some of that dark humor in it. Um, but they were also working with Nico's son, Ari, who, um, was, uh, who she, who was fathered by the famous French heartthrob, Alain Delon, um, but who never acknowledged Ari. And, um, and I think there's, so they kind of move this, this relationship between Nico and her son, um, kind of center almost to, Almost to a point where it's almost like the Whitney where it's like, oh, it's sanctioned by the family. And so maybe it's going to whitewash it a little bit because Nico mm. got her son hooked on heroin. Right. right. Uh, and they don't really talk about that in the movie. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I think this is just if you're a Nico fan, this is for sure a must see. I think Nico, whether or not you even care, I think you should look up Nico. Um, she's a fascinating person who lived quite a life um, cut short at a very young age. And, um, and uh, yeah, and the movie is actually in English. So that was a pleasant surprise hey. for me. Yes, yes. It's in English, and uh, it's rated R for drug use, language, and some sexuality. Jason, that's it. That's it. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of The Binge. You can subscribe. You can uh, get it on your iTunes, your iTunes, your Stitcher. Uh, Jason is on Twitter at... Excessfaggage. I am at Fight Balance. Thank you so much for listening. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. You made it to the end. That's amazing. There goes the binge. binge.